right now we're going to Midweek Media Watch and Hayden Donnell has joined me in the studio. Good evening, Hayden. Kia ora, Susanna. Kia ora, kia ora. I know, it's that moment. I always think, I want to say something witty and intelligent to you so that we can start, but it just never comes to me that way. I look at you and think, take it away, Hayden. Just avoid. Over to you, I'll say, over to you. I wanted to start with the war in Iraq. Who got it right on Iraq? Uh, well, that's that's the question. Not too many people in America, it seems. So we had the 20th anniversary uh, of the war in Iraq earlier uh, this week. And, of course, it's now widely acknowledged as a pretty disastrous war, which, in the words of a prescient headline from the satirical newspaper The Onion back in 2003, destabilised the entire Mideast region and set off a global shockwave of anti-Americanism. Uh, But back then, it had heavy support from both Democrats and Republican politicians, along with dozens of prominent cheerleaders in the liberal media. Uh, And on the 20th anniversary of the war, several commentators have been trawling through the archives for some of those supportive articles uh, back then, and noting that many of the people who wrote them have faced virtually no consequences and still retain powerful roles in the media. Who are we talking about? Uh, David Remnick uh, wrote The Case for Invasion. Uh, he's the editor of The New Yorker. Thomas Friedman, David Brooks, supported the war in a series of columns and public appearances. They're both still New York Times columnists. The Atlantic had a bit of a notorious cover story headlined The American Empire, brackets, Get Used to It, uh, by Michael Ignatieff. And one of its current staff writers, Anne Applebaum, also wrote in support of the war, as did its editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, Jonathan Chait was dismissive of anyone who said Iraq didn't have WMDs. Of course, uh, the people that said that were right. He was wrong. It didn't. He's a prominent columnist at New York Magazine. The list goes on and on and on. I could go on forever. But uh, meanwhile, the people that got it right include the aforementioned Onion, which despite being wholly satirical, has a far better hit rate on major issues than most mainstream publications. And what was the situation like in New Zealand? Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to talk about this, really, because I was curious. Like, What were we like at the time? Were we quite as wrong as the American commentators? And it's kind of hard to really get a definitive idea of that, to be honest, because I took a look. And 2003 is a bit of a dead zone because it's a bit between the advent of the internet and the print where we actually have really good print records of stuff, so it's kind of not easily Googleable. But anyway, having said that, I mean, I got a little bit of a picture. It seems like we weren't quite as wrong. John Rowan in the Herald said the case hadn't been made for war. His colleague Brian Rudman said it was like watching the beginning of the Vietnam War all over again. You had liberal bloggers like Russell Brown who opposed the war, and he was also the host of Media Watch back then, by the way. Now, for some not-so-great commentary to some better journalism, you wanted to comment on a special series of lobbying currently being run by RNZ's in-depth team. Yeah, to clarify, not of lobbying, on lobbying, because, I mean, mm. if we were doing lobbying, that would be a problem for RNZ. But uh, that, that's right. I mean, if you haven't been religiously consuming RNZ content, then, I mean, first of all, shame on you. But uh, if you haven't, then uh, then just FYI, Guy and Espiner has been going into the role of lobbyists in New Zealand. And what are the top revelations so far? Uh, To summarise, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Andy Curtin, used to lead the local arm of the lobbying firm Enacta, 
which fought against a container return scheme on behalf of liquor companies like Lion and Asahi. Uh, this scheme has since been scrapped by Labour under Chris Hipkins, though I will note that Hipkins told Morning Report that Curtin's lobbying had no impact on that decision, which was in motion before Curtin's arrival in his office. Uh, Guy Nespiner also managed to get details on some of the PR services provided to public entities by firms including Thompson Lewis and the Draper Cormac Group, and the former was contracted by Transpower, the latter was contracted by Pharmac, and both Firms kind of provided a bit of eyebrow-raising guidance. I guess Thompson Lewis told Transpower to release all its media statements on the same day as it returns an OIA in order to avoid drip-feeding the media stories. David Cormack of Draper Cormack Group told Farmac to let him, or asked Farmac to let him help, in his words, with an Official Information Act response on their communications spending. Now, I will note that... uh, he probably would have seen that anyway because his firm would have been part of their communication spending, but that word help is still pretty iffy given the, given the OIA is a legal obligation for these organisations. It shouldn't really be subject to... Uh, the responses shouldn't be subject to massaging. Uh, Cormac's also quoted advising Pharmac Chief Executive Sarah Fitt on how to avoid media questions following a select committee appearance telling her to leave the room looking fairly fairly hurried. And so it all reads a little bit like public agencies acting in their own interests rather than the public's? If there's an overarching narrative to the reporting, that would be it, right? At the spin-off, Duncan Greaves says, the stories are a useful behind-the-curtain look at the comms tactics that just about all reporters have encountered. And this goes for everyone will report the stuff that goes for sort of stuff like endlessly delayed OIAs, one sentence statements, this general sense that, in Duncan's words, comm staff are trying to exhaust you into moving on. Look, I've felt that in my time. I think the worst one is where they insist that you send them a list of questions in an email and you send them the list of questions in an email, it takes ages to get back to you. And then the response that you get back is a sort of formless paragraph that doesn't address any of your questions directly and is just kind of PR guff. It's a really annoying habit that these agencies have. Anyway, Greaves says that these things are all born out of these agencies making the public interest subordinate to the narrow interests of the organisation or a senior leader's desire to simply avoid engaging with the media at all. And that almost sounds (laughs) a bit Banal in a way, it's just become an accepted fact of life that public agencies employ these tactics, that they'll use their comm staff armies and their outside PR advisors to burnish their image and minimise their failings. But it's not really the way that things are meant to work. We all pay for these organisations. They're not there to look good to the public. They're there to serve it. So, I mean, they're meant to work for us. <laughs> and And that should mean being straight up with media questions and not just trying to launder their reputations and look good. And that's that's sort of why they're called public servants. To what extent are these agencies just responding to negative and sometimes unfairly negative media coverage, though? I guess that's something that I, I do feel a little bit of sympathy for in some ways. I mean, you'll be familiar with the stories whenever a public agency holds a staff Christmas party and there's this uh, media story going into granular and outrage detail about how much they spent on, you know, Christmas pudding or something. That that can feel unfair. It feels like the media thinks its its job is to police any investment in the well-being of staff. 
instead of uh, actually looking at the important and big ticket spending that these agencies do, I can see why they might feel defensive after getting that kind of thing. You also have stuff like Pharmac, where they really are dealing with highly charged issues. Their decisions are inherently emotional, uh, given the concern... Uh, I mean, they concern whether to pay for drugs that could extend or improve the lives of sick people across New Zealand. So it's regularly subject to emotionally charged media campaigns with incredibly sympathetic figures at their centre, sick people, dying people. Uh, but these compa- campaigns in the media don't always fully grapple with Pharmac's budgetary constraints, perhaps understandably. But, or, I mean... Or the fact that Pharmac often has to weigh up whether it could save more people with the same amount of money it might spend on a promising new drug. And that's hard stuff, and it's a hard media environment for them to navigate. All this is to say that, to some extent, yeah, fairness does go both ways. I mean, public agencies need to open themselves up to the media. They're meant to front up to the public regardless of the consequences. That's their job, but it might help. Uh, if there's a bit of an armistice, if, if they feel that they'll get fair and impartial treatment in return when they do. So just to clarify here, are we describing PR or lobbying? Because some of what we're talking about sounds like PR. Yeah. And if if I have a quibble with these stories or the reporting, that would be it. I mean, some of it left me a little bit confused as to what actually constitutes lobbying. My understanding of lobbying is that it's seeking to influence a legislator on policy or at least an issue. And much of what Espiner's first story in the series reveals is something that seems a bit different to that, and that's PR. I mean, that's not to say everything that he reveals is hunky-dory, and uh, but the re- revelations about the Draper-Cormac group, for instance, all involve them delivering media advice to Pharmac to deal with the media, not the government. So as I spelled out earlier, some of that advice is cause for concern, but it's probably worth defining exactly what we mean by lobbying, which I, to me entails a slightly more shady, clandestine type of direct political influence than what's being described here in some of these stories. Has there been any discussion of the media roles some of these lobbyists or PR professionals hold? Some of them are prominent commentators. Yeah, there hasn't been much in the stories themselves, and I wonder whether there's still more to come there. But you're right, because many of these so-called lobbyists, they are prominent in the media. You've got Neil Jones, Ben Thomas, David Cormack, Trish Sherson, and others. They all hold prominent commentary roles on RNZ, among other outlets. And they help in those roles to shape public opinion, political thought. And if we're talking about the political power these people wield, then the media is another platform where they can exert influence and at least build their profile. And as it happens, though, Guy and Espiner did mention that aspect of things on Morning Report this week uh, after saying part of the problem was just a lack of knowledge of who these commentators actually work with, the the lack of transparency, the opaqueness of it. Uh, He had this to say. You've got zero idea uh, what clients that they are actually working for. And I think, you know, there's a pretty strong argument the public's poorly served by that because a lot of these people also are in media roles, uh, giving media commentary. And the, the public uh, at large have no idea uh, who, who these clients are. So we've had these debates before and usually the argument is that any conflicts of interest are appropriately handled and declared by the shows they're on. Yeah, that's often said uh And uh, no reason to doubt it, but the rules can seem a bit unclear or arguably even 
inadequate. So this is one that I highlighted. For instance, this is the PR consultant and former ACT Party Press Secretary Trish Sherson on Nine to Noon's political panel declaring she worked for a pretty highly partisan organisation's campaign on an issue before immediately commenting on it anyway. Yeah, so just a quick declaration up front. We did some work with Business New Zealand on the way through a fair pay agreement. Uh, now, if you remember, Business NZ that she worked with was criticised during that fair pay agreement fight for making misleading statements. They altered a document to make it look like New Zealand's fair pay proposal had been condemned by the UN when it hadn't. And Sherson on that programme went on to compare fair pay agreements to the vaccine mandates of the business world. And now... Uh, the problem for the media is that they use these types of figures for a reason. They're often well-connected to political figures. They've got sharp and incisive takes on their decision-making. And the media do vet these people. They often do declare these conflict of interest. You heard Trish Sherson doing it there. But even if the conflicts are declared, they're sometimes not taken into account by audiences. You'll know this, Susanna. You know, they, we'll often <laughs> take things for go as gospel, uh, even if a conflict is declared. And, I mean, the other thing is that even if these lobbyists are not using these platforms to directly advance the interests of their clients, it's not shady in that way. I mean, it's still a way of getting their name out there, and potentially it's even good advertising for their PR services. They're not highly paid roles, so why else would they do it? Hmm. Now, just quickly before we move on, and I'm also looking at the texts that are building up, so you just work out when we want to go to those, but you wanted to mark the launch of a new media venture. Yeah, rudely interrupted my weekend, actually, this one. The, the new Voices for Freedom affiliated venture, Reality Check Radio, started on Monday, and then I was r reminded of that on Sunday when I was trying to enjoy a, a lovely pub lunch at the Northcote Tavern, and a plane flew over, heard the buzzing of a plane, and it was... Uh, carrying a sign behind it, trailing a sign uh, which said, Reality Check Radio, RIP Woke Media. Did the advertising work? Did you check the station out to listen and on the death of woke media? You know what, Susanna? What? I actually didn't. I haven't, I mean, I know everyone is thinking that I'm just in, locked in a bunker somewhere underground in the RNZ basement car park, just streaming, just mainlining reality check radio into my ears to give you a take on it. But that's just not the case. I don't have time. I've got two kids. So I'm sorry to disappoint, but I haven't been religiously listening to reality check radio. The bits I did catch, though weren't quite as off the wall as the advertising seemed to promise. I don't know if the, uh, the woke media is going RIP anytime uh, soon. So as a recap on the station, it's kind of a platform for people who have been deplatformed by the platform. Uh, and that's Sean Plunkett's venture, the platform. And several of Reality Check's hosts are kind of offshoots from that station, which proved too woke after... The aforementioned Sean Plunkett repeatedly defended the COVID vaccine. So despite those origins, several radio personalities on Reality Check Radio seemed less interested in going off on spittle-fleck rants about the vaccine and more, more interested in playing some solid gold hits from the 60s and 70s. So here's uh, the morning host, Paul Brennan. After hearing uh, Joanna Williams talking about Woke, I was thinking to myself, what song could I play to explode the brains? <laughs> oh of the woke and I came up with this
Beautiful. That's Paul Brennan. The, sorry to anyone that was hoping to hear the end of that song. You've actually come come into Midweek Media Watch, not Randy Newman. But that's Paul Brennan playing Randy Newman's song, Short People. And as it turns out, though, Brennan did some research on the song after it played. And as it turns out, its message is actually kind of woke-friendly. I'm reading from Song Facts here. The short is meant in a figurative sense, intending to poke fun at people who are short-tempered and small-minded, not physically short, short-tempered and small-minded, which is quite the opposite of the literal meaning, obviously. A lot of people didn't get the joke and thought of Randy Newman as a bigot. Actually, the woke are kind of known for opposing small-minded and short-tempered people. So, I mean, I guess there's some alignment there with Reality Check Radio, and probably thanks to them uh, and the work media for opposing short-tempered and small-minded people. Um, Elsewhere on the station, we did have uh, Rodney Hyde talking about how jiu-jitsu training builds resilience in young people as well. So that was another segment. So, in general, was there the outrageous, factually iffy content people feared? There was, there was some for sure, uh, and I've seen it being mentioned on social media, but I think in general the station was probably a little bit less non-stop anti-vax fire and brimstone and a little bit more classic hits than people maybe expected. So speaking of responsible discussion of sensitive topics, we've also had a media debate over whether an anti-trans activist should be allowed to enter New Zealand. Yeah, we have. So in a decision issued this afternoon, if you haven't been keeping up, Immigration New Zealand decided Kelly J. Keane Minchell will be allowed to come to the country and hold rallies in Auckland and Wellington this weekend. And if you haven't been following closely, as I said, that decision is controversial because of Keane Minchell's long history of opposition to trans rights, which has won her supporters amongst Several hate groups. So her case was urgently reviewed after Nazis turned up to her anti-trans rally in Victoria uh, in Australia recently. They, they were kind of clad all in black and they ended up throwing Hitler salutes on the steps of the Victorian Parliament. Uh, now, when the news came out that her visa was being reviewed, uh, Kelly J. Keen Mitchell didn't exactly help her own case. Uh, she issued this video message to Chris Hipkins, which subsequently appeared in media reports. Tell you what, Chris. Tell you what, Mr Prime Minister, uh, Chris Hipkins. Uh, let me just tell you this. Revoke my visa at your peril. Let's see, let's see what happens. I just, it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. Um... So, Chris Hipkins, roll the dice, my friend. Roll the dice, my friend. Uh, That's not the only rhetoric of that type that she used. After Victorian Premier Dan Andrews responded to the Nazi presence at her rally by raising a trans flag outside the Victorian government house, she tweeted, the day of reckoning will eventually come, we will not forget. So these are not the sorts of messages people usually issue when they're trying to prove they're not a threat to public safety, but it obviously didn't hurt her case. Uh, her visa was approved by Immigration NZ. And, which is funny, they, they stopped Odd Future from coming into the country because they had some controversial lyrics and there was a bit of a kerfuffle at one of their concerts in a record store. So it seems a bit 
of a discrepancy in standards there. I'm not an immigration lawyer, though. Uh, That leaves reporters, I think, with the task of covering her tour, which will undoubtedly open them up to criticism over their editorial decisions, right down to the terminology that they use. And can we talk about that terminology? Because there seems to have been a bit of an evolution in the media on how to describe figures like Kelly J. Keane Mitchell. Yeah, I think... So, something I've noticed recently that the media is all using the same term. So these anti-trans rights campaigners started off being called uh, TERS, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. And that's actually a bit of a dry academic term. But once it started being used as a pejorative, these groups decided it was hateful and coined the alternative moniker gender critical. And that probably, that term doesn't exactly give the average audience member in the media who hasn't been following this all that closely, too good of an idea of their ideology. So lately I've noticed something of a consensus in the New Zealand media on another descriptor, and that's anti-trans activists. And that descriptor has upset some of these anti-trans groups who say they're simply pro-woman, not anti-trans. And at least one of these upset people complained to the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Company, and uh, their public media entity, and it responded to that complaint. So in a letter, it's editorial policies manager Mark Maley, kind of a funny name for this particular topic, but says that after some consideration, it's arrived at a term to describe activists like Keane Mitchell and her supporters, and that's anti-trans rights campaigners. And he considered that term far more precise than pro-woman, which was broad and imprecise, just about anyone could claim it. So if our media gets similar complaints, anti-trans rights campaigners may be useful terminology. Now, not everyone is exactly going to be happy with that. No. So on Morning Report on Tuesday, uh, that exact terminology was discussed by Kim Hill in this exchange with Terry Lepanovic, who's one of the people bringing Keane Mitchell to New Zealand. As a hypothetical, if I oppose gay rights, does that make me anti-gay? Not necessarily, no. It wouldn't worry me. And so if I said, I don't want a teacher at my child's school being gay... Would that make me anti-gay? It would, yes. And so if I I oppose trans rights, why would that not make me anti-trans? She doesn't oppose trans rights. That's what everybody, that's what you have wrong. Uh, It went back and forth. Now, obviously, the ABC and others disagree with that assessment, and they think that banning trans people from a host of public facilities on the basis of their gender would be an imposition on their rights. Now, and that's obviously what some of these campaigners want. Now, it's interesting to see Hill being quite forceful on this point, though, because she was criticised recently after she carried out a one-hour interview with another anti-trans rights campaigner, Kathleen Stock, on her Saturday morning RNZ show. So that interview was the subject of BSA complaints, though the BSA recently ruled in her favour, saying that Stock's views were challenged adequately. Now, the other contested fact is the extent of the connection between Keane Minchel and hate groups like the ones that turned up to her Victorian rally. Yeah, and uh, Keane Minchel, her supporters, have been pretty vociferous about denying any link to these people that did turn up to support their cause. Uh, Having said that, there are arguments going the other way. The researcher, uh, far-right researcher Byron C. Clark, he studies conspiracy theories and 
the far right. He he wrote uh, on the interplay between some of the anti-trans ideology out there and fascist groups on his Substack page, the Fijoa Dispatch. If you don't know what Substack is, it's kind of a blog that you can pay for. Uh, he, he, he quotes the author Jason Stanley in saying, uh, quote, transphobia has moved to the center of fascist politics as people recognize it as a method to create a cross-racial coalition against democracy. And Clark goes on to say, and this is his own words, utilizing and growing transphobia as a method of far-right organizing has been increasing for the past several years. And he talks also about a historical link between Thomas Sewell, and a, who was one of the, or the leader of the neo-Nazis who attended Ken Mitchell's Victoria rally and the Christchurch Mosque terrorist. And, and, and then he calls on immigration minister Michael Wood to reject Keane Mitchell's visa, uh, a plea that was obviously unsuccessful. So basically, even if there's no connection between Keane Mitchell's or no direct connection between Keane Mitchell's supporters and these far-right groups, there's a bit, there are some shared goals there or some uh, shared thoughts about things, according to Stanley and Clark. And there's a danger in reporting on this subject, partly because trans people are significantly overrepresented in our mental health stats. How do you think the media can cover this tour in a way that doesn't do harm? Uh, just a, just a, as a warning, I'm going to discuss, I'm going to touch on suicide here. But um, RNZ report, reported on the Counting Our Cells survey in 2019, which showed uh, 79% of trans and non-binary people had contemplated suicide in the last 12 months. That's an order of magnitude above the general population. 32% had been sexually assaulted in 2020. Another RNZ report was that one in five trans people have experienced homelessness. So this is obviously a group that's already pretty vulnerable. And one concern is that in the name of airing both sides of the so-called debate about trans rights, the media will repeat some of the mistakes of its past on rainbow issues where gay and lesbian people were subjected uh, to dehumanising rhetoric and smears in the name of balance. So some of the anti-trans movement's rhetoric does echo those past debates, including the way, I mean, you would have seen it on placards and signs at the uh, rallies in Australia that, that linked, uh, the way that they link uh, trans people to pedophiles or groomers. Uh, and that sort of language might be familiar to the rainbow community who lived through stuff like the 80s homosexual law reform. In the media, we might now cringe at some of the dehumanising perspectives we aired, especially given we've since found out that uh, equal rights for gay people has really no impact on us so straight people at all. I mean, uh, I did an interview last year with Ross Palethorpe, a trans man who works in mental in the mental health sector, and he said the media was very much in danger of repeating those mistakes of the past when it comes to the coverage of trans people, and the impact uh, of its negative coverage can be profound. Here's what he had to say. The only time I saw people like me represented in any way was footage of AIDS victims, which is such a damaging you know, environment to grow up in. You know, the, the, the way that the British tabloids, and I imagine the New Zealand tabloids, talked about gay rights and things was phenomenally damaging and we're starting to see it again and I, I you know when I think about young trans and gender non-conforming people who I who I know they are just coming into their sense of self and what they see is a media environment which is painting them in this extremely negative light and then we wonder why mental health statistics for LGBT young people are as as dire as they are. Now, Palethorpe decried the idea that the media has to host uh, what he called a debate, 
between women's rights and trans rights, saying they're not at odds and said reporters should remember that they're talking about human beings just trying to live their lives, not subjects for allowed ethics discussion. Now, on that, I actually heard some quite nice content recently. And this was on Today FM, uh, on Duncan Garner's show. So this is what happened when Shirley, the mother of a trans child, called in to Duncan Garner. At about the age of 16, um, she basically told her father and I that she wanted to, that she was a girl. And how, what was your reaction? Um, Thank you for ringing me, by the way. <laughs> no worries. Um, our re- both of our reaction, I mean, we'd split up at that stage, but um, both of our reaction was 100% behind her. Because you love her as your, no, she, she, your child. That's correct. Now, that acceptance and love seems to have done a bit of good. Um, Shirley did go on. When she actually made that decision that this is who she was, she has, oh, she's blossomed. It, it's, it's quite amazing to see. Wow. Now, what, a brilliant, what, a, what, a, what a brilliant story. And the poor thing, <laughs> that, you know, going through that confused, you know, uh, I know oh, she probably knew who she wanted to be, but she couldn't, was worried about society's reaction, your reaction to dad's reaction. Oh, the poor thing. Correct. You know? oh. Correct. Now, I, I think... That exchange is just a reminder that there are human beings at the end of this coverage. They're not a debate or a controversy. They're people who, statistically speaking, already experience disproportionate difficulties in life. And in the media, we do have the power to make that worse, uh, but we don't have to. And I think that's something to keep in mind over the coming days. Very good point. Well made. Well, we've got quite a number of texts in response to your question around the coverage of the Iraq war um, back in 20, well, when was it, 2001, 2002, 2003? All those years were kind of run together with what actually happened in what order. So I'm just going to read some. I'm going back to the beginning here, Hayden, so we can capture the first person who responded to your question. Uh, my dad, I always <laughs> told him it would be cheaper to drop pallets of money. That's from Chris in New Plymouth. It was well known there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq 20 years ago. Very important to understand that. That's from Richard in Wellington. Well, this is the thing. We had all of these... uh, I felt a little bit like I was living in a parallel universe sometimes, even back then, because I remember there were millions of people going out in the streets saying there's no WMDs even then, right? And young people seemed to know it when they took to the streets of London, etc., in their millions... (laughs) In their millions, I remember being in London at the time. Now, here's another text regarding Iraq War. Who was into it? Dot, dot, dot. George W. Bush. Another text. This is from Emmett. Surely Mike Hoskin would have been boorish enough to support the Iraq War. You know what? I'm not sure that... I, I don't know for sure. I, I did read something from Mike Hosking. I'm not sure that he was quite on the same wavelength that he is today, but it was a transcript of an interview that he did with John Howard. John Howard was obviously in support of the American invasion, uh, but Mike Hosking kind of gave him what for, said you're out of step with your own population views here, that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure he would have been exactly for it. I mean, as I mentioned, John Rowan, uh, not exactly the most... Liberal commentator in town, he was against it as well. 
When did John Key say in Parliament, get some guts, if it wasn't Iraq, then was it Afghanistan? Question mark. Well, that was obviously later because John Key only came to power in 2008. I don't know what that was over, but I think it was over one of those conflicts and it was sending troops back. I actually looked that up. Can't remember. I will say, um, I, when I was doing this research, I read a parliamentary debate and I think Bill English was actually the leader of the National Party back then. And he was, he said that, I, I'm not sure he argued vociferously for the justness of the war or anything, but he said that we should follow America into this as it's a key strategic partner here. And another text here, the name not included, says Don Brash supported the war against Iraq. You can Google that. Yes. And another text, anyway, the dogs of war will bark and bite endlessly. Just a small share of that trillion dollars is incentive enough. And another one, Hayden, they've said Hayden. Yeah, okay. Hayden, the Uh-oh. container return policy has not been scrapped but has been postponed until more favourable times post bread and butter. Yes, that is, that, that is correct. Hayden. And I feel duly admonished. I mean, I'm, I'm repeating the media, media's terminology there, and I feel like maybe the postpone line is a little bit of maybe we're doing some of the PR practitioners' work for them. Uh, if we're talking about the, the the dark arts of PR up the top, I feel like that might be a little bit of a PR term there. Back, uh, back to the we'll t- see. It might be back on the table at some point. So might the clean car upgrade. Who knows? This is from John, who says, Re-Iraq, the UN had Hans Blink, SP, yeah. checking for weapons of mass destruction. He found none. Yep. Uh, Susanna... New Zealand's involvement with Iraq led to the demise of the then Alliance Party as minor coalition of the then Clark government. An upstart Alliance staffer blacked access to parliamentary offices by party members lending to Jim Anderton and Matt Robinson as minister, splitting from the party. Well, that's a little bit of political history. Well, who knew? Who knew? There's a Do lot you... of detail there, and I, I, I don't know. Either way, I'm sharing the text because here we go. Here's someone who's just okay. who's acknowledging what you were raising before. I don't understand how New Zealand can ban a black hip-hop group with actual queer members because of homophobic lyrics, but anti-trans friend of Nazis, question mark, come on in. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, yes. Uh I, reading the odd future decision, I read just an old article about it. I don't know ins and outs of it at all. They used some other stuff as well. Uh, they said some lyrics about rape uh, from odd future were used to justify it, as well as there was an altercation where a police officer was injured in a record store. Yeah, uh, those were the key justifications that were used. But it, they, they, I mean, when you stack them up against... Nazis saluting at the rally or alongside the rally uh, on the steps of Parliament. It is, it is questionable. We've got a minute and a half, Hayden. How would you like to wrap up Midweek Media Watch? I can tell you that Dallas Gurney, the founder of Today FM, has left uh, MediaWorks, or not the founder, he's the person that helps set up Today FM. Uh, he's stepping down and... Uh, 
We don't know exactly why he's leaving, but the station's highest-profile star, Tova O'Brien, shed a little bit of light on that in an on-air editorial and accompanying blog post celebrating the station's first birthday where she said that um, Gurney was stepping down for what she called understandable personal reasons. But it does put, I would, you'd have to say, the future of Today FM a little bit up in the air because another ally, ally of the station has also gone from MediaWorks and that's the CEO, Cam Wallace. He's the guy that funded or backed the decision to set it up. So, hmm, yeah, it's kind of watch this space territory there. Station's future up in the air, it's struggled for ratings, it's really losing to news talk in the ratings game. They say it's a long-term project, but, you know, you've got stuff, Tom Paul-Strecker as well, he's got quotes in, uh, from people inside MediaWorks who think that it's a waste of money, and uh, it does look a little bit potentially shaky with some high-powered allies leaving the building. Indeed. Well, on that note... That was Midweek Media Watch for this week with Hayden Tanell. Thank you very much for joining us in the studio, Hayden. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.